For Palm Sunday, we are stepping away uh, from our regular study in the book of Acts, and we will be uh, looking this morning at Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And obviously, each of the Gospels uh, records this event for us, but I've, I've chosen to look at Luke's account this morning because I want, uh, in particular, to notice what I think is Jesus' unusual emotional response to his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We, we speak of Jesus riding into Jerusalem triumphantly. This is, this is a moment of, of victory, and yet, what do we see? We, we see that as he rides into Jerusalem, as he approaches the city, you see it there in verse 41, he weeps. He weeps over the city. And to understand what's going on there, we, we need to look at the entry itself, but then we need to understand why it is uh, that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And so let's just begin with the obvious. Uh, the, the obvious point here, uh, the first thing we need to see is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. His, his triumphal entry is into Jerusalem. We, we see this in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And actually, if you are familiar with Luke's gospel, you, you know that this has been the trajectory that Jesus has been on for some time now. In fact, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, as it's called, began all the way back in chapter 9. And it wasn't just that Jesus happened to be going to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke puts it much more emphatically than that. Luke tells us that Jesus actually set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was firmly resolved. He was, he was going there and he would not be diverted. And chapters 9 through 19 of Luke's gospel tell us the, the story of that journey to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem in chapter 19, it is not by chance. Jesus' arrival is a considered, deliberate decision. This is where he has been going all along. This is where he knew he would finally end up. And not only is he going to Jerusalem on purpose, but we also know from the account of his journey there that he knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets there. Jesus is going to be uh, betrayed and, and condemned when he gets to Jerusalem. But when those things happen, he is not going to think of himself, if only I would have known. If only I would have known what was going to happen to me when I got here. I, I could have made other plans. We do that sort of thing all the time. I, I do that sort of thing all the time when I'm driving to and from Chattanooga. If I, if I get halfway between here and there and I find myself sitting in traffic, I think, why didn't I check the map? Why didn't I ask my phone what the traffic was like? Because, because if, once you get stuck between exits 20 and 11, there's no way off. You're just there. And we think, well, if only I would have known, I could have done things differently. But Jesus is in, in for no such surprise. He knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. Just flip back uh, several chapters. Flip back to chapter 9, verse 21. Here in uh, chapter 9, we, we come really to the, the climax of the first part of Luke's gospel. All right? uh, Luke, the, uh, the Luke's uh, account of the first part of Jesus' public ministry is really focused on the question of who is Jesus? 
Remember, at the very beginning, as he, as he read the scriptures and as he proclaimed the gospel in his own hometown synagogue, uh, the people asked him, isn't this Joseph's son? And they didn't mean that as a compliment. It, it, was, a, it was a question of derision. We, we know who you are. You're, you're Joseph's son. And all of that comes to a climate. This question of, isn't this just Joseph's son? That whole section comes to a climax when, in verse 20, Peter finally confesses Jesus to be the Christ of God. Jesus had asked him directly, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And in response to those questions, Peter, speaking for the twelve, confesses Jesus to be the Christ of God. And now, as soon as that confession is made... Jesus charges them, in verse 21 there, to tell no one. (laughs) He's been driving to this point for for three years now. And, and, And all of a sudden he's saying, okay, now that you know who I am, don't tell anybody. Why? Why does he tell them to to keep it a secret? Because they know that he is the Christ of God, but they don't yet know what that means. And notice what it is that they don't understand. Notice what it is that Jesus immediately begins to teach them. Verse 21, he says, I strictly char- he, uh, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. They know that he is the Christ of God, but they don't yet know what that means. And so Jesus says, don't go telling people I'm the Christ yet. First, let me tell you what it means for me to be the Messiah. It means that I'm going to suffer. It means that I'm going to be betrayed. It means that I'm going to die. Now, we we know from what comes next that that is not what Peter was expecting to hear. It's not what the the twelve were expecting to to hear when when they confessed Jesus to be the Christ of God. And yet, that is precisely... What Jesus thinks they need to hear because he knows it's what they don't yet understand. And he doesn't just say this once. Uh, flip down uh, a little further in that, uh, that chapter to verses uh, 43 and 44. Jesus goes on to say yet again, he says, let these words sink into your ears. You ever said something like that to your kids? You probably don't use that exact phrase. But, but there are times when you say to your kids, listen up. It's because you know they're not listening. Let this sink into your ears. You need to hear this. He's speaking to his disciples as ones who are confused, as ones who who can't quite hear what he is saying. He says, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's driving the point home because he knows that his disciples do not understand. And then he comes back to it yet again in chapter 18. Turn there with me. In chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, we we see it again. Luke tells us that taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Again and again, 
Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He's not going to be taken by surprise. He's not going to think, if only I would have known. He is going to Jerusalem on purpose. He has set his face to go there knowing exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets there. And so the question is, why? Why would Jesus determine to go to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be betrayed, knowing that he is going to be killed? Well, we find our answer in the text before us this morning. Flip back to the account of the triumphal entry. Look with me again at the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples, beginning there in verse 29. We're we're told that he's going up to Jerusalem. Then when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord has need of it. One of the few places in the Gospels where where Jesus gives such specific instructions to his disciples, and they they seem not all that important. You know, know, go make provisions for my transportation into Jerusalem. It it seems like if Jesus was going to give specific instructions about something, he could have have picked something a little bit more significant. What's going on here? Well, Well, we know is that the specific instructions that Jesus is giving, the the instructions that we see in verse 32 that the the disciples followed precisely. They they go and they do. This is what Hebrew narrative does. It it gives you the instructions and it shows shows you that they fulfilled those instructions precisely. We see that in the the building of the tabernacle, for example, in the Old Testament. God tells them how to do it and then he tells us that they did it that way. And that's exactly what we see here. Because this is divine instruction. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Keep reading there in verse 35. We're told that as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had been saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, the people recognize what Jesus is doing. They, they recognize the symbolism of his actions because they understood that Jesus was fulfilling An Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9. A prophecy that you've heard read many times on previous Palm Sundays. So if we're going to understand what Jesus is doing, if we're going to understand why Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem, even though he knows what's going to happen to him there, we have to understand this prophecy in Zechariah 9, this, this prophecy that, that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling. So, so turn there with me. We're going to keep flipping around the Bible a little bit this morning. So turn with me to Zechariah. I can find it. Pages stuck together. All right, Zechariah chapter 9. 
Because here in Zechariah we have the, the very prophecy that Jesus is very intentionally fulfilling. So, so beginning there in verse 29. That's not right. Let's see here. I wrote down the wrong verses here. So anyway, verse 9. Let's go with that. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Let's see what, what Jesus is, is doing here as we, as we look. So he says, The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So Zechariah is, is calling on the people to rejoice. You see that there in verse 9. It's, this is a, a call for celebration. This is a call for uh, rejoicing. But why? Why is he calling on them to rejoice greatly? He says, because your king is coming to you. Behold, he says, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what the people saw. That's what the people understood what was, was going on. The people of Israel were rejoicing because they saw their king was coming to them and he was bringing salvation. That's, that's why Zechariah is calling on the people to rejoice, because the king is, is coming to them with salvation in his hand. He is, he is coming to them to, to bring them that which their hearts long for, to, to set them free. And they know that he is coming because the sign of his intention is that he comes riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He does not come on a, on a war horse. He does not come to overpower and to, and to subdue. He does not come to defeat and subject, but rather he comes to bless. He, he comes to save. He comes to bring peace. He comes humble and gentle, riding on a donkey. And we know this exactly because the prophet Zechariah tells us. He, he goes on in verse 10 to say, I will cut off the chariot. Now, now the chariot is an is a instrument of war. He's saying, I'm going to cut off the chariot from among my people, from Ephraim, and, and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, now the idea of having the, uh, the chariot cut off or the, or the battle bow broken, that, that language is sometimes used to describe a curse in the Scriptures. God will sometimes break the bow of His people. He will, he will uh, cast the, the chariot aside in order to leave His people defenseless. But here, God in His, his mysterious providence turns that which is a curse into a blessing. The, cur the chariot is cut off not to leave the people defenseless, but because they no longer need defending. These things are cut off because they are no longer necessary. Think of Isaiah's famous words when he speaks of the, peers, uh, the spears being turned into pruning hooks and the swords beaten into plowshares. That's the image of what's going on here. The chariots are no more because they are no longer necessary. The war horse is no longer necessary. Jesus comes, not on a war horse, but on the foal of a donkey. Because he comes to bring salvation and peace to his people. And so when Jesus enacts this prophecy in a very public way, he is claiming to be the one who brings salvation to his people. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king who brings peace to his people. The king who will once and for all time deal with the enemies of God's people and bring to them overflowing blessing. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. That's what the people celebrated as, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
The king is coming, the long-promised king, the king who brings salvation to his people, the the king who will once and for all time deal with their enemies, the, the king who will bring them peace. And it seems that the disciples get it. That's why they are rejoicing. Again, flip back now to Luke chapter 19. Because we read there in verse 37 that as he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And remember, we saw in John's account that those mighty works included the raising of Lazarus. They knew that here was one who came with the power of life. And he was bringing life to his people. And so they proclaimed, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're rejoicing because their king is coming to them with salvation in his hand. And we know from the rest of the story that the disciples don't fully get it yet. They don't yet completely understand what is going on. They are going to be left dazed and and confused by the coming week. They they still don't understand how Jesus is going to bring peace. They they still don't fully understand that he must be betrayed and, and condemned and crucified, even though he has told them on multiple occasions. They still don't fully get it. But they know enough to rejoice. They know enough to to cry out in salvation, Hosanna, we are saved. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior of God. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, his disciples praise him. But what we see in this text is that while his disciples rejoice, the people of Jerusalem still don't get it. Again, notice what Luke tells us in verse 41. As Jesus draws near to the city, he weeps. Here he is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and yet he weeps. And he's not weeping for himself. He's not weeping because he knows what's about to happen to him. Why does he he weep? He weeps over Jerusalem saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus isn't weeping for himself, knowing what is about to happen to him, but rather Jesus weeps for Jerusalem because he knows that they don't get it. He knows that they do not have eyes to see him as the Savior that he is. And because they don't get it, because they don't know him, because they don't see him, notice what will happen to him. Jesus says it emphatically. He says, the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's speaking of the the coming destruction of Jerusalem, that that time when when God would use Rome to level his city, his, his apostate city, his unbelieving city, the people who would not receive Jesus as king. 
Even as the psalm predicts, they would be smashed like pottery beneath an iron scepter. The city would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another because they would not receive the Lord's anointed. Because they would not receive the gift of salvation that He was offering. The the salvation purchased with His own precious blood. And therefore, because they do not see Jesus, because they do not receive Him, because they do not rest upon Him, instead of receiving the blessing that He brings, they will instead know the curse that they deserve. Instead of salvation, they will receive condemnation. And so Jesus weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem because He comes with salvation in His hands. He comes to His own. And they do not know Him. They do not receive Him. Jesus came as the Savior. And yet the people failed to receive salvation. And I think as we read that, as we, as we see that account, that Jesus rides in Jerusalem as the Savior. And yet... The people of Jerusalem are not saved. It forces us to ask the the same question that that Jesus asks here in, in these verses. Do we this morning know the things that will bring us peace? That's the question of Palm Sunday. That's the, the question that we must wrestle with. Do we know the things that will bring us peace? That we want peace, I I think, is beyond dispute. We all desire, we we all long for peace. And especially after this past year, which I think most of us would say was anything but peaceful. Wherever you are on the the political spectrum, whatever your view of of masks or or occupancy limits or, or vaccines, whatever side of the divide you happen to be on, You felt it this last year. You you felt the tumult. You you felt the the, the division. You you felt the the chaos. I know I felt it. I'm sure that you did too. And in the midst of such turmoil, in in the midst of such a year, our hearts long for peace. We long for things to be put right. But do we know how to get it? Do Do we know... How to find the peace for which our hearts long. You know from speaking to your neighbors or from even looking into your own heart that many of us today, we we continue to believe that peace will come through a change in our circumstances. We we think that, that our problem is circumstantial and that therefore the solution must be circumstantial. If we could just get certain things right, if we could just get certain things in in place, then we would know peace. People thought this, of course, before the the pandemic. This is nothing new. Long before the pandemic, people thought, well, if I could could just make a little more money, if I could just have a, a, a more enjoyable job, if I could just have better friends or a better spouse, if I could just you know, have better health, if I could just get over this back pain or, or that knee problem. Whatever it was, people thought if I could just fix this or that in my circumstances, then I could finally know peace. And that really hasn't changed during the, the pandemic. Maybe the, the focus of the changes we're after have, have changed for some of us. 
We're, we're worried about masks and, and vaccines, but at bottom we still believe that, that, if cha- that, we, that changing our circumstances is the path to peace. However, the truth is, even if we were to get everything we wanted, even if we could write the script for our lives, it wouldn't be what we wanted. Such changes that our hearts desire do not bring the peace that actually satisfies. We, we know this from experience. We, we know that, that getting those things that we've set our hearts upon don't actually bring the peace that we expect and, and long for. We knew this as kids when, with Christmas presents, right? There was always that present that we had our hearts set on that we think this is going to be it. This is going to give me life. And then by the new year, you've already forgotten it or, or broken it. But it's not just kids who do that. We do it as adults, too. We, we think if I could just switch jobs, if I could just get a raise, if, I could, if people would just wear their masks, if I didn't have to wear a mask, then I would know peace. It's the way that our sinful minds think. But again, such circumstantial changes, we know they do not bring the peace our hearts long for. Certainly, Solomon knew this. Solomon had more resources than most. He he could change his circumstances more than, than most. And he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that he did everything in his power to conform his circumstances to his will. He says, I denied myself no pleasure. Whatever pleasure it was, whether it was the the sensual pleasure of beauty or of of food, or whether it was the the pleasure of profound pursuits, he denied himself nothing. He did what he wanted. He, He leveraged his resources to his own happiness, and yet nothing satisfied. He tells us in the end he found it all to be a chasing after the wind, a, a vapor that is here and then gone. All was vanity. Did not give him the life that his heart desired. Jesus said something similar when he said a man can gain the whole world and yet lose his life. You can conform your circumstances to your desire. You can gain everything you want and still not know life. There was a man named Asaph who learned this lesson firsthand, and he wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 73. Again, it's a, it's a familiar psalm, but you, you remember how the psalm begins. Asaph tells us that he envied the wicked. In the first part of the psalm, he says that, that when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, when I, when I saw their lives of ease, he says, my foot almost slipped. I was, I was envious of their lifestyle. I was envious of, of, of their pleasures. And I said to myself, why don't I have that? This is what Asaph is thinking. He's, he's looking at the, the, the wicked. He's looking at those whose circumstances are better than his. And he said, if only I was there, if only I was in their shoes, then I would have the satisfaction for which my heart longs. But he comes to ver- the, uh, verse 16 and he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was a wearisome task to me. I, I could not get it. I, I could not get my mind around it until. And then he tells us what changed. He says, I, he says, I could not understand it until I went into the sanctuary of God. And there I discerned their end. 
So Asaph envied the wicked until he went into the sanctuary. Because only there in the sanctuary did he discern therein. So, so what is it that Asaph saw in the sanctuary? What is it that, that jogged him out of his malaise? What is it that opened his eyes to the truth? Well, what would you have seen in the sanctuary of the Old Testament? You would have seen the sacrifices. You would have seen animals being slaughtered upon the altar. And in those sacrifices, Asaph says, he saw the end of the wicked. You see, the sacrifices, they, they show us that the wages of sin is death. They show us that the wicked may prosper for a while. They may enjoy good circumstances for a time, but in the end, they will be blown away like chaff. In the end, their way is destruction. They cannot stand in the Lord's judgment. He also saw something else. He, he also remembered something else when he looked upon those sacrifices. Because you see, it wasn't the wicked whose blood was being spilt in the sanctuary. It was the blood of an innocent substitute. It was the substitute's blood that was being poured out, not the sinner's. And so in the temple, yes, he saw the end of the wicked, but he also saw the hope of the righteous. He saw that another can die in the place of the sinner. You see, the righteous live not because they are righteous in themselves. They withstand the judgment not because they stand upon the, the merit of their own record. They stand in the judgment because they stand in the substitute. And the substitute stands in their place. They stand in the place of the Lamb who has died. The blood of the Lamb covers their sin and turns away God's wrath. This is, this is what Paul is talking about when he says that the righteous live by faith. They live by faith in the substitute. But the, but the death of the Lamb, that Asaph saw in the sanctuary, that was merely a, a picture of what was necessary. For the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats in the end cannot truly take away the guilt of sins. And that is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. He went to lay down his life for us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His death was not Unexpected, it was not unfortunate. His death was on purpose. And his death was for us. And it is only through his death that we can have peace. We see this clearly spelled out in Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that, that God put forth his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation it's not a word we, we use often today, but it's a word which, which means a, a sacrifice for sins, a sacrifice that brings atonement. 
It is a word that referred to the Old Testament sacrifices and now is fulfilled in reality in Jesus' offering of himself. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that, that turns away the wrath of God so that Paul can go on in Romans chapter 5 to say that having been justified by his blood, we now have peace with God. Having been justified by his blood, we now have been reconciled to him. There is no longer a record of death. There is no condemnation. It has been nailed to the cross. It has been dealt with once and for all. Our ransom has been paid, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb offered in our place. And so through Jesus' death, we now have peace with God. We have an objective peace. We, we have a, a peace that, that says there is nothing between us. There is no longer a record of death. There is no longer condemnation. There, there, there is no longer wrath. We have peace with God. And because we have peace with Him, because we have been reconciled to Him, because we have that objective peace, we can now know his subjective peace. We can now have peace in the midst of life's storms. We can now have peace in the midst of our circumstances. This is the point that Paul drives home in, in Philippians chapter 4 when he calls upon the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. How is it that, that Paul can, can call on Christians in the first century, Christians who, who faced so many trials, Christians who, who faced so much backlash, so much persecution, how can he call on them to rejoice always? It's because he knows these things to be true. He knows that they have been reconciled to their Heavenly Father. And therefore, if they have been reconciled to their Heavenly Father, they can entrust themselves to Him. And the Lord who is at hand, Paul says, the Lord who is with them, he will work all things together for their good. And knowing this, Paul says, as they entrust themselves to the Lord through prayer, His peace, His, his subjective peace, that peace will rule in their hearts. That, that peace that is beyond understanding. In other words, that, that peace that makes no sense to the world because it's not based on circumstances. That peace, he says, will rule in their hearts. And that's what we need to see on Palm Sunday. That's the, the reality that we need to let grip us. We want peace. But like the people of Jerusalem, we often don't get it. We don't know the things that will bring us peace. We, we don't understand how God has worked objective peace that we might rest in Him for all eternity. You see, we need to see that it's only through the peace that God gives us with the Father that we can know His peace in the present. And so I think for most of us this morning, the, the question is, is simply this. Do we know this? Yes. But like Asaph, we forget. We forget. We, we, we forget where our peace comes from. And, and we're easily distracted. We're easily diverted. We're, we're easily uh, uh, compelled to, to go searching for our peace in broken cisterns that will hold no water. 
And if that's where you found yourself recently, if you if you found yourself lapping at the mud puddles, wondering why they don't satisfy, thank God for Palm Sunday. Thank God for this profound reminder that our peace is rooted only in the peace that we have with the Father. Thank God that that our King once died to be our Savior. Thank God that He did not spare His own Son, but put Him forth as our propitiation, as the sacrifice that reconciles us to Him, that we might know His peace through peace with Him. You see, as I come here before you this morning, I I cannot tell you that the things you fear will not happen. I can't tell you that your job may not be cut. I, I can't tell you that your loved one will necessarily recover. I was just talking about this with someone yesterday. I, you know, how many situations do we find ourselves in where, where the solution isn't within our power and God doesn't seem inclined to give it? We don't always understand. We don't, we don't always understand what He's doing or, or why He is doing it. But we do understand this, that though the storms continue to rage, though the floods rise, though the trials come, because Jesus' blood was spilled for us, those who are in Him will not be overwhelmed. Those who are in Him will not be burned. Those who are in Him will know His Peace that surpasses all understanding. God will work for the good of those who love Him. That is God's promise, a promise sealed with the precious blood of His Son, the one who came to give His life as the ransom for many. And if you have faith in Him, you have peace with God. There is now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, through Him, you now have a living hope, uh, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, even as you are kept for it by God's power through faith. And therefore, even now, in this present evil age, you can have peace. And because such peace is ours, even in the midst of of days such as these. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We we thank you for the gift of your Son who rode triumphant into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, not not to conquer and subdue, but to be betrayed and killed and buried that he might rise again victorious over death for us. Father God, let us rest in him and let his peace rule in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.